Well, we start a new series this morning, and it's a study in the book of Colossians, which is uh, fortunate because this morning's reading is found in Colossians. So uh, I'd like to read that to you this morning as we begin. It's found in first, or it's found in Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty-three. I'm going to be reading from the NIV uh, translation. So if you guys would like to follow along with me in your Bibles, I would encourage you to do that. The Apostle Paul writes. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of God. Paul is writing this letter to the church at this time called Colossae, this named after a city in this town called Colossae, which was in Asia Minor. And Paul is writing this letter to the church about 60 AD. It's a church that Paul himself did not find. It's somebody else, a man named Epiphras, we believe, who's named in this letter, found this church. And he has traveled to Rome to visit Paul. Paul is in Rome and he's in prison at this time. And shortly after this letter, we believe he was killed there in Rome. But Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae because Epiphras has come and brought good news of the new believers that are in Colossae. And he shared with Paul the hope that he has for the church in Colossae, but he said there's starting to be some heretics, some false teaching find its way, finding its way into the church. And so Paul decides to write a letter to this young church. He's going to hand it to Epiphras, and he's going to go back and deliver it and read it to the church in Colossae. And it's Paul's encouragement to them, but it's also Paul's warning to them to be on the lookout for these false teachers. And in this morning's text, as we heard read, we're going to look at what Paul has to say to them, how he tries to encourage them. Now, we read, as we'll read throughout these chapters, that there is no specific false teaching. There is no heresy. You sort of see a general warning from Paul, but the one thing we know about all false teachings, about all heresies, is that they're at their core, they're self-centered. They're self-centered. Anytime someone tries to add something on top of what Jesus has done, it will always be self-centered. It will always cause you to be focused on yourself and on your business. And when you're focused on yourself, it's always about what I must do, what I need to add, how good do I need to be, the things that I must do in order to be good with God, in order to find my way to heaven, there's things I must do. And if I do that, in order to understand that, if I'm good or not, I'm going to need something or someone to compare myself to. 
You get that? If it's self-centered, I'm going to need a way to, I'm going to need a bar. And anything outside of Jesus, the bar is arbitrary. There's no bar that says, this is where you need to be. It does, there's no number. It doesn't say, well, if you're in the top 40%, then you're okay. And even if it did, how would you know? Right? So the only way to measure yourself is against something or somebody. And so that's what we do. We measure ourselves against each other in these false teachings. You know, and if I figure out that I'm better than you, well, then I feel pretty good about myself because I'm better than you. I don't tell you that because that would be like, that'd be rude and that'd be arrogant. And then you might think me less than you and, well, that wouldn't be good because I'm better than you. So I don't let you know that. But I feel good about it because that's a start, right? He can't be the only one that I'm better than. And as I meet people, I sort of size them up and I evaluate. And we, you know, we do that all the time. And we feel good when we find somebody who's less than us, right? And we feel good about that. And when we feel good about that, right, we're friendlier, we're more generous, and we do good for other people because when we do good for other people, we feel good about that. And other people think good of us and we think better of ourselves. And so it's a great system until we come across somebody who we think might be better than us. And then what do we do? Right? Those feelings of inferiority, and we start to sort of size you up, and I start to feel anxious, and I feel fearful and less than, and I can't feel that way. So I start to find flaws in you. And I can find a flaw if I look hard enough, and then when I find it, I just let everybody else kind of know, but not really overtly because that would be rude. I would say, if you saw him like I saw him, then you would know that I'm better than he is. Right, But then when I can't seem to find a flaw and your behavior kind of convicts me a little bit, then you know, I need to go find somebody else who can see the flaw that I see in you. And together, we know we're better than you. Right? And even better, what if we get more people into our club? And the more people we have into our club, the better we feel about ourselves and the easier it is to look down on you because of who you are, where you live, what you wear, who your friends are, things, that, things like that. And we can judge you because... Together, we, we, we're pretty powerful. And we feel good about ourselves. But see, that system is so iffy. It's so dependent, and it's so wrong. And Paul says, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is being Jesus-centered, focused on Jesus and Jesus' affairs. What's important to him him personally, learning to trust him and who he is. That's what it means to be Jesus-centered, focused on his business, not upon myself. And Paul tells them this and tells us so we can spot the false teachers, we can spot the heresies, because the heresies inerrant in their heart will be self-centered, and they will be destructive to you and to everyone else. And so Paul begins in this verse, in 15, to sort of tell us and them why this is important that they understand this. And he starts this way. He says, he, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You know, there was a young boy who was coloring a picture, and his mother stopped and said, well, what is it you're coloring? And he says, well, I'm coloring a picture of God. And she looked at him and said, well, Nobody knows what God looks like. He said, well, they will when I'm finished. <laughs> See, that's what Jesus said. When he finished his work here on earth, he said, now you know the truth. 
Now you know the truth of the Father. You know what he looks like. If you want to know what the Father looks like, Jesus says, look at me. That's what he says to Philip and the disciples in the upper room when he said he was going to the Father, and they said, show us the Father. He said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul's telling us, Jesus, this man I thought who was a heretic, I thought who was a lunatic, the man that I witnessed crucified, the one I applauded in my heart when he was crucified, turns out he is God. He was more than just a mortal man. He was God himself. In fact, he was the visible image of God. He goes on to tell us that not only that, he is the firstborn of all creation. I want to stop there because that word firstborn causes people to stumble. If you've ever spoken to a Jehovah's Witness, this is one of the verses that they'll point to. And they'll point to it because they say, see, it says Jesus was born. Well, we know he was born as a, a man, but no, they're saying, no, he was born. He was created. And is that really what Paul is saying? Well, the word there in the Greek is the same word that's used of Jesus being the firstborn son of Mary. But you have to read it in context. Because context determines meaning. And to better understand that, I want to take us back into the Old Testament to give us some understanding about what Paul is saying, because he's not talking about time. He's talking about status. He's talking about preeminence, the greatest. That's what he means when he says firstborn. If you go back into the Old Testament and the story of Isaac and his two sons, Isaac was the son of Abraham. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they were twins. And in that Jewish culture, the father would bless the eldest son. And that blessing would convey to that son and to everyone else that this son, this heir of mine, is the greatest. He is to be honored above all of my children. In fact, the blessing would not just be an honor, but he would get twice what every other heir would get. The blessing was meant to convey the importance of the firstborn, the one born first. Esau's born first, but it's Jacob, the second, who was given the blessing of the firstborn. He was born second, but yet he was given the blessing of the firstborn and therefore considered to be honored and greater than his brother, even though he was second. You follow me? Now go to Jacob, and Jacob has sons, the eldest of which is Reuben. And on his deathbed, he gives the firstborn blessing, not to Reuben, and not to any of his sons, but to the son of Joseph. Joseph had two sons in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he goes to bless them, and that's who he's going to give his firstborn blessing to. And in order to do that, Joseph puts Manasseh on his right, and, and he puts on his left, he puts Ephraim. And what does Jacob do? He crosses his hands and puts the firstborn blessing on the one born second, not the one born first. And Joseph says, wait a minute, Father. Manasseh is the one born first. He says, no, Ephraim will be my firstborn. He will be greater. You get what he's saying? Now take King David in the Psalm 89. The psalmist is writing about David. He says, and I will make him, that is David, the firstborn, the highest of kings on the earth. Now, David was not the first king, was he? Saul was the first king. 
David was the second king. But he says he'll be the firstborn. Joseph was, or David was not even the oldest in his own family. He was the youngest in his family. And so we see here again this use of the word firstborn, not to denote that, that he was actually born first, but he is the greatest. He is the highest. He is the most preeminent of all. We go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gives us some more insight. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's writing about God and Jesus. He says, for he, that is God the Father, has put everything under his feet. The his there is Jesus. So God the Father has put everything under Jesus' feet. And when Jesus has finished his work, and that concludes on judgment day, when he's defeated death, he said, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, God the Father. The Son will then be made subject to God the Father, who has put everything under Jesus' feet, so that God may be all in all. Do you see what's happened here? God has put everything under Jesus' feet. God the Father has made everything under Jesus' feet. He is the preeminent. He is the most important. He is the firstborn of all creation. And when he's defeated death, the judgment day, then the Son will then give everything back over to the Father. And the Father will be all and all, and everything will be as it should be. And Paul is telling this church at Colossae, and he's telling us that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He is the most important one in everything. He is preeminent over everything. Just by that alone, he should be worshiped and followed, and we should center our lives under him. To better help you understand the gravity of that statement, I'm gonna use an illustration from Tim Keller. He said he was taught this, and he was given this illustration by a Sunday school teacher who really, the illustration helped him put all this into better perspective. The Sunday school teacher looked at the class and said, if you consider, let's assume the distance between the sun and the earth, 92 million miles, is represented by one thickness of a sheet of paper. So the scale is the thickness of a sheet of paper. That represents 92 million miles. Now, consider the distance between the earth and the nearest star. That would take a stack of paper to represent that of 70 feet high. Now, let's just consider the galaxy. The diameter of the galaxy would take a stack of paper 310 miles, not feet, miles high. She went on to say that the galaxy is but a speck of dust in the universe, and God's word says that Jesus holds it all together by the power of his word. And she looked at her class and said, now is that the kind of person you invite into your life to be your assistant? Is that the kind of person you turn to in hard times and say, I need some help here? Is that the person you come to just once a week or once a month and, and worship? No, he's saying, Paul's saying to us this morning, no, he is the greatest, he is the preeminent, he is the God of everything. That alone deserves our worship. That alone should demand our centering our lives under him. Just that alone. 
should demand our worship. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us there's more to this God. And he says, and this God, that Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, in everything, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus comes to earth and he establishes a church, a body, a group of believers. And we worship him because he is God. Because that alone deserves our worship. But Paul goes on to remind us that it's more than that. He goes on to remind us that the reason we can do that without fear is because Jesus himself gave his life for me. The most important being ever, the most important being came to earth and became a man. He came to earth to be spit upon, to be mocked, to be slandered, to be beaten, to be flogged, and to die. Not just by old age. But he was crucified. He was humiliated on a criminal's cross outside of Jerusalem on a mount on a hill called Golgotha. And he did that for you and for me. The most important, the most preeminent one lowered himself under his creation and gave his life for everyone so that he could reconcile everyone unto himself. We worship him. We center our lives under Jesus because he is God. But we worship him freely because he first loved us. And we love him because of what he's done. And we keep our eyes fixed on him. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and Jesus' affairs because he died for me, an enemy of God. Not because I was a good person. Not because I was in the top 50%. Not because I had the right teaching. Or not because I was in that 144,000. He did it because he loved us. Even while we were his enemies. Even while we did evil things. And even while we do evil things. He still loved us. And he paid the price for our sins. And we together are the church, those that believe in Jesus. And so as the church, we center our lives under Jesus. You cannot exist apart from the church and be centered under Jesus. It is the church that he has made for himself. And it is the church that he gathers. And as a follower of Jesus, we center our lives under Jesus, and that means we center our lives in the church. I'm sorry, but you cannot be outside the church. It can't just be me and Jesus, and I don't need these people over here. That's called selfish. That's called self-centered. To be Jesus-centered, we need to be in the church with one another, because you know why? I don't need help being selfish. I don't need help being self-centered. 
There are plenty of clubs out there that will reinforce that, but I need help being Jesus-centered. I need you to help me be Jesus-centered, to remind me, to help instruct me Jesus' words, remind me of Paul's words, that I'm not to compare myself to one another. I'm not to compare myself to everybody else. Look at what, look at what Paul says, that he has now reconciled us in his flesh by his death in order to present you holy, that's perfect, set apart, blameless, above reproach. That's the bar. It's not you, it's not me, Jesus is the bar. And he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we're also told he's not just the bar, he's the judge, the perfect judge. I mean, how foolish is it that sinful people judge sinful people? How well do you think that turns out? We need a righteous judge, we need a sinless judge, and that is Jesus himself. He will judge rightly. He is the one that can see our hearts. And we thank God that he can. And we thank God that he is the good, righteous, true judge that is faithful to his word, that as we stand before the throne of God, we stand in the blood of Jesus Christ without fear, without anxiety, without feeling less than, knowing we stand in the righteousness of Christ centered under him with the church. As messed up as it is, we center ourselves with Jesus Christ. And as the church, we encourage one another. We instruct one another. We don't judge one another. We correct one another. We don't think less than one another, but we do hold one another accountable to God's word with love, and together as the church, we grow up into the fullness that is Christ. But we do that together. We support one another. What good is the thumb apart from the body? We need to be connected to the body to be centered under Jesus. We serve one another in the body as Jesus served. We serve those in need as Jesus served. We, as Jesus, care for the body, but we also, as Jesus, care for those that are not in the body. We are the church centered underneath Jesus. You see it in Paul. You see here those three things. Paul says that God himself, Jesus, is the most supreme, most preeminent of all. He alone deserves our worship. He has established his church, centered underneath Jesus and his teachings, ignoring, rejecting any false teaching that would add anything to what Jesus has done. And you and I have been redeemed because of the blood of Christ. We all line up under Jesus, but I wanna make this clear. It's not Jesus, the church, and you. You are the church. There is no intermediary. It is Jesus and it is the church. And he says we pray straight to the Father. And we encourage one another. And we together are the light of the world. And not just this body, but anyone, 
Anyone who declares Jesus Christ, confesses him with their mouth and believes in their heart is what scripture tells us. We together are the body of Christ. We together are the church. One pastor said, the church is the hope of the world and that's exactly how God designed it. That we would come together, that we would be united under Jesus Christ, the head, proclaiming his truth, his truth. Next week, we're gonna gather again and we're gonna talk about that mission, about Jesus' work. We're gonna focus on Jesus' affairs and what it means to be the church. Come back next week as we discuss fuller about what it means to build our lives, our lives on Jesus. I pray he blesses you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.